Chapter 15 Herbert Hoover and the Myth of Laissez-Faire 1. Herbert Hoover as Secretary of Commerce The conventional wisdom of historian and layman alike pictures Herbert Hoover as the last stubborn guardian of laissez-faire in America. The laissez-faire economy, so this wisdom runs, produced the Great Depression in 1929, and Hoover's traditional do-nothing policies could not stem the tide. Hence, Hoover and his hidebound policies were swept away, and Franklin Roosevelt entered to bring to America a new deal, a new progressive economy of state regulation and intervention fit for the modern age. The major theme of this chapter is that this conventional historical view is pure mythology, and that the facts are virtually the reverse. That Herbert Hoover, far from being an advocate of laissez-faire, was in every way the precursor of Roosevelt and the New Deal. That, in short, he was one of the major leaders of the 20th century shift from relatively laissez-faire capitalism to the modern corporate state. In the terminology of William A. Williams and the New Left, Hoover was a preeminent corporate liberal. When Herbert Hoover returned to the United States in late 1919, fresh from his post as relief administrator in Europe, he came armed with a suggested reconstruction program for America. The program sketched the outlines of a corporate state. There was to be national planning through voluntary cooperation among businesses and groups under central direction. Footnote. Hoover's earlier career confirms this appraisal of his views. There is no space here, however, to analyse his earlier ideas and activities. End footnote. The Federal Reserve System was to allocate capital to essential industries and thereby eliminate the industrial waste of free markets. Hoover's plan also included the creation of public dams, the improvement of waterways, a federal home loan banking system, the promotion of unions and collective bargaining, and governmental regulation of the stock market to eliminate vicious speculation. It is no wonder that progressive Republicans, as well as such progressive Democrats as Louis Brandeis, Herbert Crowley and others on the New Republic, Edward A. Feline, Colonel Edward M. House and Franklin D. Roosevelt, boomed Hoover for the presidency during the 1920 campaign. Hoover was appointed Secretary of Commerce by President Harding under pressure by the progressive wing of the party and accepted under the condition that he would be consulted on all the economic activities of the federal government. He thereupon set about deliberately to reconstruct America. Hoover was only thwarted from breaking the firm American tradition of laissez-faire during a depression by the fact that the severe but short-lived depression of 1920-21 was over soon after he took office. He also faced some reluctance on the part of Harding and the cabinet. As it was, however, Hoover organised a federal committee on unemployment, which supplied unemployment relief through branches and sub-branches to every state and in numerous cities and local communities. Furthermore, Hoover organised the various federal, state and municipal governments to increase public works 
and persuaded the biggest business firms, such as Standard Oil of New Jersey and United States Steel, to increase their expenditure on repairs and construction. He also persuaded employers to spread unemployment by cutting hours for all workers, instead of discharging the marginal workers, an action he was to repeat in the 1929 Depression. Hoover called for these interventionist measures with an analogy from the institutions of wartime planning and collaboration, urging that Americans develop the same spirit of spontaneous cooperation in every community for reconstruction that we had in war. An important harbinger for Hoover's later depression policies was the President's Conference on Unemployment, a gathering of eminent leaders of industry, banking and labour, called by President Harding in the fall of 1921 at the instigation of Hoover. In contrast to Harding's address affirming laissez-faire as the proper method of dealing with depressions, Hoover's opening address to the conference called for active intervention. Furthermore, the conference's major recommendation for coordinated federal state expansion of public works to remedy depressions was prepared by Hoover and his staff in advance of the conference. Footnote. Playing a crucial role on this staff was Otto Todd Mallory, the nation's leading advocate of public works as a remedy for depressions. Mallory had inspired the nation's first such stabilisation programme in Pennsylvania in 1917 and had been a leading official on public works in the Wilson administration. He was also a leader in the American Association for Labour Legislation, an influential group of eminent citizens, businessmen and economists devoted to government intervention in the fields of labour, employment and welfare. The AALL, endorsing the conference, boasted that the conference's proposals followed the pattern of its own recommendations, which had been formulated as far back as 1915. Apart from Mallory, the conference employed the services of nine economists who were also officials of the AALL. The AALL singled out for particular praise Joseph H. DeFries of the US Chamber of Commerce, who appealed to business organisations to cooperate with the conference's programme and to accept business responsibility for the unemployment problem. End footnote. Of particular importance was the provision that public works and public relief were to be supplied only at the usual wage rate, a method of trying to maintain the high wage rates of the preceding boom during a depression. Although these interventions did not have time to take hold in the 1921 depression, a precedent for federal intervention in an economic depression had now been set, as one of Hoover's admiring biographers writes, rather to the horror of conservatives. The President's Conference established three permanent research committees, headed overall by Hoover, which continued during the 1920s to publish studies advocating public works stabilisation during depressions. One such book, Seasonal Operations in the Construction Industry, Washington, D.C., Conference on Unemployment, 1921, the foreword to which was written by Hoover, urged seasonal stabilisation of construction. This study was in part the result of a period of propaganda admitted by the American Construction Council, 
a trade association for the construction industry, which of course was enthusiastic about large-scale programmes of government contracts for the construction industry. This council was formed jointly by Herbert Hoover and Franklin D. Roosevelt in the summer of 1922, with the aim of stabilising and cartelizing the industry and of planning the entire construction industry through the imposition of various codes of ethics and of fair practice. The codes were the particular idea of Herbert Hoover. Following the path of all would-be cartelists, who are hostile to no one more than the individualistic competitor, Franklin D. Roosevelt, president of the American Construction Council, took repeated opportunity to denounce rugged individualism and profit-seeking by individuals. Throughout the 1920s, Hoover supported numerous bills in Congress for public works programs during depressions. He was backed in these endeavours by the American Federation of Labour, the United States Chamber of Commerce and the American Engineering Council, of which Hoover was for a time president. It was clear that the engineering profession would also benefit greatly from government subsidisation of the construction industry. By the middle 20s, President Coolidge, Secretary Mellon and the National Democratic Party had been converted to the scheme, but Congress was not yet convinced. After he was elected president, but before taking office, Hoover allowed his public works plan, the Hoover Plan, to be presented to the Conference of Governors in late 1928 by Governor Ralph Owen Brewster of Maine. Brewster called the plan the Road to Plenty, a name that Hoover had taken from Foster and Catchings, the popular co-authors of a plan for massive inflation and public works as the way to end depressions. Footnote. Waddill Catchings was a prominent investment banker who founded the Pollock Foundation for Economic Research, with Dr. William T. Foster as director. Foster was Brewster's technical advisor at the Governor's Conference. Foster and Catchings had called for a $3 billion public works program to iron out the business cycle and stabilise the price level. Foster and Catchings reciprocated by praising the Hoover Plan a few months later. The plan, they exulted, would iron out prices and the business cycle. Quote, it is business guided by measurement instead of hunches. It is economics for an age of science, economics worthy of the new president. End footnote. Although seven or eight governors were enthusiastic about the plan, the Governor's Conference tabled the scheme. A large part of the press hailed the plan extravagantly as a pact to outlaw depression. Leading the applause was William Green, head of the AFL, who hailed the plan as the most important announcement on wages and employment in a decade, and John P. Frey of the AFL, who announced that Hoover had accepted the AFL theory that depressions are caused by low wages. The press reported that labour is jubilant because the new president's remedy for unemployment is identical with that of labour. The close connection between Hoover and the labour leadership was no isolated phenomenon. Hoover had long agitated for industry to encourage and incorporate labour unionism within the framework of the emerging industrial order. 
Moreover, he played a crucial role in converting the labour leaders themselves to the idea of a corporate state with unions as junior partners in the system, a state that would organise and harmonise labour and capital. Hoover's pro-union views first achieved prominence when, as chairman of President Wilson's Second Industrial Conference, 1919-1920, he guided this conference of corporate liberal industrialists and labour leaders to criticise company unionism and to urge the expansion of collective bargaining, government arbitration boards for labour disputes, and a programme of national health and old age insurance. Soon afterward, Hoover arranged a meeting of leading industrialists with advanced views in an unsuccessful attempt to persuade them to establish liaison with the AFL. In January 1921, the AFL Journal published a significant address by Hoover, which called for the definite organisation of great national associations of economic groups and their mutual cooperation. This cooperation would serve to promote efficiency and mitigate labour management conflict. Above all, workers would be protected from the unfair competition of the sweatshop. Still more did this mean protection of the lower-cost large employers from the competition of their smaller sweatshop rivals. A typical instance of monopolizers using humanitarian rhetoric to gain public support for the restriction and suppression of competition. Hoover went so far in this address as to support the closed shop, provided that the closure was to be for the sake of unity of purpose in aiding the employer to increase production and to mould a cooperative labour force. In conclusion, Hoover called for a new economic system, what was in effect a corporate state that would provide an alternative to old-fashioned laissez-faire capitalism on the one hand and Marxian socialism on the other. In an authoritative study, William English Walling, an intimate of Samuel Gompers, wrote of the crucial influence of Hoover's theories upon Gompers and the AFL, especially from 1920 on. This influence was particularly strong in persuading the labour leaders to endorse the idea of organising all the large occupation groups and then effecting their mutual harmony and cooperation under the aegis and control of the federal government. Capital and labour in each industry, organised in collaboration, were to have the role of government of that particular industry. Footnote. Addressing the International Association of Technical Engineers, Architects and Draftsmen, in May 1921, Gompers spoke enthusiastically of the close entente that had developed between engineering groups and the AFL. It was Gompers, furthermore, who persuaded Hoover to accept the presidency of the American Engineering Council. End footnote. It was indeed appropriate for French politician Edouard Herriot to praise Hoover in 1920 for his idea of fusing the economic trinity of labour, capital and government into one system, thus putting an end to the class struggle. Another reason for Hoover's pro-union attitude was that he had adopted the increasingly popular thesis that high wage rates were a major cause of prosperity. 
It then followed that wage rates must not be lowered during depressions. In contrast to all prior depressions, including 1920-21, when wage rates were cut sharply, wage cutting was considered by Hoover to be impermissible and as leading to a failure in purchasing power and the perpetuation of depression. These views were to prove a fateful harbinger of the policies used during the Great Depression. One of Hoover's most important labour interventions during the 1920s came in the steel industry. He persuaded Harding to hold a conference of steel manufacturers in May 1922, after which he and Harding called upon the steel magnates to bow to the workers' demand to shift from a 12-hour to an 8-hour day. In doing so, Hoover was siding with the liberal wing of the steel industry, led by Charles R. Hook and Alexander Legg, whose plants had already instituted the shorter workday, and who of course were anxious to impose higher costs on their lagging competitors. When Judge Gary of United States Steel and other leading steelmen refused to go along, Hoover acted to mobilise public opinion against them. Thus, he induced the National Engineering Societies to endorse the eight-hour day, and himself wrote the introduction to the endorsement. Finally, Hoover wrote a stern letter of rebuke for President Harding, which Harding sent to Gary on June 18, 1923, forcing Gary to capitulate. Herbert Hoover also played a leading role in collectivising labour relations in the railroad industry thus cartelizing that industry still further than before and incorporating railway unions within the cartel framework. After repeated and largely unsuccessful interventions to try to gain pro-union concessions during the railroad strike of 1922, Hoover became a major author, along with union lawyers Donald Richberg and David E. Lilienthal, of the Railway Labour Act of 1926 by which the railway unions got themselves established in the industry. The ancestor of the New Deal's Wagner Act, the Railway Labour Act imposed collective bargaining upon the industry. In return, the unions agreed to give up the strike weapon. The great majority of the railroads warmly supported this new departure in American labour relations. In a major address before the United States Chamber of Commerce on May 7, 1924, Hoover spelled out his corporatist views in some detail. He called for the self-regulation of industry by way of trade associations, farm groups and unions. In a vein strongly reminiscent of English guild socialism, Hoover harked back to the Middle Ages for his model. The guilds, he asserted, obtained more stability through collective action. The job of the associations was to strengthen ethical standards in industry by eliminating waste and destructive competition. In short, Hoover was calling for the national cartelization of industry under the aegis of government. Footnote. In his book American Individualism, Hoover had hailed the growing cooperation and associational activities of American industry, and the consequent reduction of great wastes of over-reckless competition. End footnote. Samuel Gompers hailed this address and considered the new economic policy to be the same as the newly forged position 
of the AFL. Footnote. After Gomper's death in 1924, his successor, William Green, continued the close AFL collaboration with Hoover. End footnote. Herbert Hoover's entire program of activities as Secretary of Commerce was designed to advance the subsidization of industry and the interpenetration of government and business. As Hoover's admirer and former head of the United States Chamber of Commerce put it, Hoover had advanced the team play of government with the leaders of character in the various industries. Thus, Hoover expanded the Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce fivefold, opening numerous offices at home and abroad. His trade commissioners and attaches aided American exports in numerous ways. He also reorganized the Bureau along commodity lines, with each commodity division headed by someone chosen by the particular trade or industry, from the trade he knows and represents. Furthermore, Hoover promoted the cartelization of each industry by inducing each trade to create a committee to cooperate with the Department of Commerce and to select the industry's choice for head of the commodity division. Officials in the department were systematically recruited from business to stay in the department for a few years and then to return to private business at higher-paying jobs. One favourite method of Hoover's for subsidising as well as cartelizing exports was to foster the creation of export trade associations. Thus, in 1926, Hoover repeatedly urged the coffee trade to band together and create a national coffee council, so that all American coffee buyers could join together to lower buying prices. Hoover and his aides craftily suggested to the coffee trade that one union leader and one woman consumer be named to the proposed coffee council as a public relations device to relieve public fears of a cartel. The difficulties of forming a coffee cartel proved insurmountable, but Hoover had more luck with the rubber industry, organising it to fight British cartel restrictions on Asian rubber production that had been imposed in 1922. Hoover led the rubber industry in a drive to induce Americans to buy less rubber, and hence to lower the price as well as to promote American-owned sources of supply, by such means as government subsidies to new United States-owned rubber plantations in the Philippines. An American rubber buying pool was established in 1926 and lasted until the end of British restrictions two years later. Footnote. Harvey Firestone was the most enthusiastic rubber user backing the Hoover program and also in organising American-owned rubber plantations in Liberia. The mighty US rubber company, on the other hand, already owned large rubber plantations in the Dutch East Indies, which were not subject to British restrictions. US rubber was therefore the rubber user least enthusiastic about the buying pool. End footnote. As soon as he assumed office, Hoover induced President Harding to pressure investment bankers to require that the proceeds of their loans abroad be used to purchase American exports. When little came of this pressure, Hoover began to threaten congressional action if the banks did not agree. 
For Hoover, the aim of subsidizing exports was so important that even unsound foreign loans that could serve this purpose were considered worthwhile. Footnote. Hoover also clashed with banks that made foreign loans to Germany, since he was worried about the loans building up competitors to American firms, especially chemical manufacturers. End footnote. Hoover's opposition to foreign monopoly did not, of course, prevent him from supporting a protective tariff in the United States, thus providing privilege to American domestic as well as export firms. During the 1920s, Hoover was also active in promoting the cartelization of the domestic oil industry. As an active member of President Coolidge's Federal Oil Conservation Board since its inception in 1924, Hoover worked in collaboration with a growing majority of the oil industry in behalf of restrictions on oil production in the name of conservation. This was a conservation, by the way, that was urged regardless of whether American oil resources seemed to be scarce or abundant. Hoover was particularly interested in removing antitrust limitations on industrial cooperation in such restrictive measures. In the field of coal, Hoover sponsored repeated attempts at cartelization. The first attempt was a bill in 1921 to establish a federal coal commission to gather and publish statistics of the coal industry, so as to publicize price data and thereby facilitate industry-wide price fixing. Failing a commission, the Department of Commerce was eager to take on the task. However, this and a later scheme by Hoover to encourage marketing cooperatives in coal by exemption from antitrust laws were defeated by the opposition of competitive low-cost southern coal operators. Undaunted, Hoover in 1922 prepared a full-fledged cartelizing plan. The idea was to establish unemployment insurance in the coal industry, so designed as to penalise in the cost of the plan the part-time and seasonal coal mines, and thereby to drive these higher-cost mines out of business. The coal industry would then form cooperatives, which would fix and allocate quotas on production, putting more mines out of operation, the owners to be compensated out of the increased cartel profits made by the rest of the industry. The district coal cooperatives were to market all the coal and then divide the revenues proportionately. But once again, Hoover could not command the needed support from the coal industry and the public. Footnote. During the coal strike in the spring of 1922, Hoover organised an emergency system of rationing and price controls. Harking back to his wartime experience, he established a network of district committees to hold down coal prices. After the typically Hooverian voluntary controls failed to work, Hoover called for governmental price-fixing, and by late September, Congress had passed a law appointing a federal fuel distributor to enforce fair prices. End footnote. Hoover played a similar role in cartelizing the cotton textile industry. Favouring the open price plan for stimulating price agreements, Hoover used his Department of Commerce to provide the price publicity that might be illegal for a trade association. Hoover also played a role in forcing the cotton textile industry 
to establish a nationwide rather than a regional trade association, to the delight of the bulk of the industry. Hoover repeatedly urged the many reluctant firms to join this cotton textile institute, which gave promise of stabilising the industry and eliminating waste in production. Hoover went so far as to endorse, in 1927, the CTF's plan to urge each of the member firms to cut production by a certain definite amount. Footnote. The cotton textile industry urged Secretary Hoover to become the first president of their new institute. As it was, the president was a man recommended by Hoover. End footnote. One of the clearest indications of how far removed Hoover was from laissez-faire was his leading role in nationalising the airwaves of the fledgling radio industry. Hoover put through the Nationalising Radio Act in 1927 as a substitute for the court's increasing application of the common law, granting private ownership of the airwaves to the first radio stations that put them into use. One of the most pervasive and least studied methods by which Hoover helped to monopolise industry during the 1920s was to impose standardisation and simplification of materials and products. In this way, Hoover managed to eliminate the least necessary varieties of a myriad of products, greatly reducing the number of competitive sizes, for example, of automobile wheels and tyres and threads for nuts and bolts. All in all, about 3,000 articles were thus simplified. The recommendations for simplification were worked out by the Department of Commerce with the aid of the eager committees representing each trade. Hoover's approach to the farm question was consistent, a repeated emphasis on the cartelization of agriculture. Footnote. In the case of salmon fishing, Hoover called for federal regulations from 1922 on. In that year, he induced Harding to create salmon reservations in Alaska, thus cutting salmon production and raising prices. End footnote. At first, the favoured means was the subsidising by government of farm cooperatives. Hoover helped write the Act of August 1921 which expanded the funds allotted to the War Finance Corporation and permitted it to lend directly to the farm co-ops. He also supported the Farm Block Bill for an extensive system of federal intermediate credit banks and a federal farm loan board, which were to lend federal funds to farm co-ops. In the Department of Commerce, he was able to help farm co-ops with marketing programmes and with aid in finding export markets. Hoover soon enlarged his ideas of farm intervention. He was one of the earliest proponents of a federal farm board, designed to raise and support farm prices by creating federal stabilisation corporations that were to purchase farm products and to lend money to farm co-ops for such purchases. And to this end, in 1924, Hoover helped write the unsuccessful Kappa-Williams Bill. As a presidential candidate in 1928, he promised the farm bloc that he would promptly institute a farm price support programme. Footnote. It was not only the farm bloc that wanted a nationally cartelised agriculture. 
Two of the fathers of the agitation for farm price support were George N. Peake and General Hugh S. Johnson, heads of the Moline Plough Company, one of the largest farm equipment manufacturers. As such, they were directly interested in the subsidising of farmers. Big business in general was also enthusiastic, the farm price support plan being warmly supported by the Businessmen's Commission on Agriculture, established jointly by the US Chamber of Commerce and the National Industrial Conference Board. End footnote. It was a promise that he hastened to keep, for as soon as he became president, Hoover drove through the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1929. This act created a federal farm board with a revolving fund of $500 million to raise and support farm prices and to aid farm co-ops. The board was to conduct its price-raising operations through stabilisation corporations for the various commodities, with the corporations also serving as marketing agencies for the co-ops. Furthermore, Hoover appointed to the board representatives of the various agricultural and farm co-op interests, a cartelization operated by the cartelists themselves. Footnote. Chairman of the eight-man FFB was Alexander Legg, president of International Harvester Company, one of the major farm machinery manufacturers, and, like Peake and Johnson, a protégé of financier Bernard M. Baruch, since the days of economic planning of World War I. Others represented on the board were the tobacco co-ops, the livestock co-ops, the Midwest grain interests, and the fruit growers. End footnote. 